Welcome everyone to Twig 212. We have Ethan Levy back in the house after a long hiatus, it feels like. And hello, Laura hello. <laughs> uh, is also here. Um, Mr. Eric Seifert, what is it, Florida or something? I don't know what he's doing. He's at Art Basel, I think. He's oh. hobnobbing with rich folks and buying ape NFTs like they never went out of style. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see. We're going to quickly cover uh, Nintendo's new, quote unquote, new and improved mobile strategy. Um, Levy's going to speak about the Apple uh, new app pricing policies, which I did not quite understand when I read through it. So I'm glad he is now covering it. Um, and then we're also going to re rehash this hyper casual, hybrid casual classification hybrid casual. <laughs> that we found out that our own. Um, uh, Mishka Katkoff was one of the ones that coined that term after the cat fact, which is really ironic. Um, and that's it. How's everything going? Ethan, Laura? Uh, well, my my quick life update, I've got two. One is uh, I've been doing coding. I've been making my own prototype for the first time in two years, and it is so much fun. It is so much fun to code. It's like if I write code for 45 minutes and hit play and it works, I'm like, it's fucking magic. I am a genius. <laughs> like every time it doesn't get old. So um, I am having so much fun with game development lately and I wanted to share my joy and enthusiasm. And if you're having some seasonal affective disorder, uh, I cannot recommend enough uh, personal game jam or something. It's, it's rejuvenating. What, by um, the way, what are you using? Like, what are you using oh. to code? I like, use GameMaker Studio 2, which I love. Um, it's cheap. It's easy to use, uh, pick up and play. Um, you know, there's great tutorials. Um, you can get it on Steam. Um, it can export to Mac, PC, mobile, HTML5. I, I can't show this thing enough because I've been using it for 20 years. And cool. I literally taught myself to code by reading the manual and, you know, cloning Pac-Man in it. So... Uh, I love Game Maker Studio. It is a professional piece of software now, like Hotline Miami was made in it and a bunch of other games. Um, a lot of what you see on itch.io was in um, Game Maker. So like, I'm not a real programmer, but I, I can play one on TV, Got it. basically. Um, my real life update, though, is that my, uh, my wife is giving birth literally any day now, um, you know, sometime in the next two weeks in all likelihood. So... Uh, I'll be off mic for quite a while uh, with this being child number four and final and taking paternity leave. Um, I'll probably be back sometime mid late January onto Twig if, if I'm getting five hours of contiguous sleep a night. And I've got a bunch of um, spotlight interviews and tokenomics that I've been banking over the past couple weeks um, that'll be recorded. Ethan, um, you know, you know, yeah. I have to be a little bit frank with you is it time for the big v i mean is it time to get a snip snip <laughs> oh you know? no i'm doing Four it kids? I, you're out of your goddamn mind dude. my 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 joke is as soon as that baby arrives that's when i go under <laughs> oh that's <laughs> ouch <laughs> uh, um, yeah i'm full i'm full dad core here in uh in the south i thought the US. two is too many four wow it's a lot of um, kids but i'm glad they exist <laughs> Well, I have, a, I have a personal story to share, a story of triumph, of loss, and sage life advice for all of you out there. So buckle in. 
So first, my story of triumph. I won my first basketball coaching debut. I won my first game and my only game that I will ever play, uh, be a coach. And now I'm retiring with a perfect record. That's my goal. Uh, <laughs> honestly, I didn't top. do much. You I didn't, didn't do much. Good one game. <laughs> I didn't do Did much. Did you cut the orange slices? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I changed the defense a little bit, a little bit too late. Of course, my son was the one that told me to do that. But I did call a key timeout at the end of the game. We were up by five uh, with, with like a minute or so, two left. And uh, we were about ready to turn over the ball. I called the timeout. And, and I was so out of my mind, freaked out. I screamed so loud that the scorekeepers like jumped out of their chairs because I was so out of my element. But anyway, we won the game. That's it. Um, but the story of loss is why I was actually coach for a day, uh, was that our coach Sal, who we've been with for like six freaking years, his, uh, dog Obama, <laughs> a pit bull, English bulldog mix, uh, who is by the way, the most scariest dog ever made, ever created uh, that I've seen. Um, he woke up paralyzed with his leg. Below the, the the hind legs were completely paralyzed, right? So he had to bring him up to UC Davis to get surgery, um, to do an MRI and then get surgery, right? To repair the damage. Uh, evidently, it was a slipped disc in his fucking spine that created this paralysis. Sadly, Obama died <laughs> before they even did the surgery in uh, under to giving him anesthesia. So rest oh, in peace, Obama. Of course, that's now quite this sad. It is sad. It's very sad, right? I mean, this this sad. dog was was horrific, though. I mean, I, I have to be honest. Like, this is the type of dog that when you go in the house, it is like slamming its body against the door trying to get at you. You know, it's fucking scary, right? But anyway, rest in peace, Obama. And now this this whole podcast is going to be flagged because I've said that <laughs> this is piece of Obama, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, between at, that and and uh, anti pit anti uh, dog sentiments, I think this is the okay. one we finally get canceled. Maybe this, this is could it. be it. <laughs> so this is my sage life advice to you. By the way, my wife is a veterinarian. If you guys didn't know that, um, but anyway, this is my this is a, my advice for you. For the sake of all things holy, do not buy purebred dogs. Like they are genetic mutants. These dogs do not belong in nature. And the worst of them are English bulldogs, French bulldogs, Great Danes. Basically, any purebred has been bred to death so that they have like no genetic. They have so many genetic abnormalities because there's no, <laughs> because they've been completely overbred. These dogs are like island people, you know, um, and these abnormalities lead to like lymphoma mast cell tumors, patella luxations, mitral valve disorders, hip dysplasia, curvatures of the spine. They are fucking freaks of nature. And English bulldogs are the fucking worst. They are so genetically modified that they are incapable of reproducing on their own. Their little legs are too short. Their penises are too short, so they can't mount the dog. So you have to artificially inseminate them in order to like get, get pregnant. And the second thing is they're they're bred with their heads are so freaking big, they can't fit through the canal, right? And so you have to actually do a cesarean to have these 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 kids, these babies born. So fundamentally, these dogs are absolutely genetic disasters, and they have like flaps over their eyes that have to be removed by expensive facial reconstruction. Yes, this is plastic surgery for dogs, people. They almost have almost all have hip dysplasia and, and elbow dysplasia and other spinal problems, which is the, the problem that Obama had, right? 
They have heart problems, eye problems, immune systems, breathing problems. They are waking medical money pits, okay? So as a public service announcement, go adopt a fucking rescue dog, find a mutt somewhere, and stay away from these purebreds, all right? There we go. That's my, uh, uh, my, <laughs> my public service announcement for the year. All right. What else? Anything for you, Dolora? That's my update. <laughs> Well, um, nothing, nothing quite as, as uh, heavy, but I got a new microphone. Um, actually, my, my boyfriend listens to the podcast and said I sounded pretty terrible. So <laughs> last week, Eric said, you need to get a microphone. And I was like, why? Everything's fine. And then I was told I sounded bad. So here we are. First, what? first time trying this microphone. Now what, why don't you, you get need? a freaking chair? Like, no, you have to <laughs> The whole point of the mic is to put your face in front of it, right? Instead, you're like standing up and like bending over. Like they haven't lady. arrived yet. They ha- I, 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 so my you, flat has a sofa and I don't have space for a table and chairs and I'm waiting for these bar stools to arrive. They're, Any they're, day now, just like time, Ethan's baby. The, yeah. time of, the, the time of sensitivity of, of you moving into a new place is almost over. Like it's I been know. two months, okay? Like you, you, gotta, you gotta get it together. I still don't have my, my slow boat stuff. It's still it's still crossing oh, really? the Atlantic. Yeah. I see. All right. All right. All right. We'll give you another <laughs> month or so. Thanks. I, I guess that's fair. All right. You need you need some carpet, some books, some things that absorb sound. You need you need to stop living your American psycho life. <laughs> <laughs> I will not buy any rugs. I am actually loving the empty flat. So I'm, I'm like already planning to throw half the stuff that's coming out. Just it's gonna yeah. go. Give, give me the empty flat any day. Just the chairs would be appreciated. All right. Quick updates, Miss Laura. A quick one. So I think it's quite exciting. Um, Angry Birds has launched a new bird. Uh, the game came out, came out in 2009, so it, it's been around quite a long time, and they've added a new character. The character is called uh, Melody. The article said this is the first character in seven years, but I, I pinged some of the Rovio guys and um, Andy... Apologies if, I'm, if I don't pronounce the last name correctly. Andy Mues um, said it's actually only been four, four years. So many games with longstanding IPs tend to shy away from too much change. Um, and in this, in this case, adding you know, too much complexity by increasing the amount of choices. But I think this is a great way to keep Angry Birds present, add something new for the players. Um, and it's one, of the, it's one of the ways that I, I just, without differentiation and new things, they're just—it's going to be more harder and harder to, to keep uh, keep the game where it is. Um, I didn't get to play, but I did watch the videos. The character is quite cool. It seems inspired a little bit by Kirby. There's an inhale exhale mechanic, um, and I asked Andy if there's anything he wanted to share about the about this, um, and he wrote to me. They'd like to have more of what they have. They like the idea of the growing roster of birds. Frankly, I do too. Um, they're going to have a look and see how Melody does. Um, say, similarly, new mechanics are important. They like to introduce new ways of play. Um, this actually adds an element of customization to your play style because you kind of get to select the birds that you want to play with now. Um, and they're looking to, as their roster grows, they can look to other RPG game modes to engage with users. Um, but they're sticking with casual. So short update on Rovio. Talk about talk about speedy live ops. Four years since their last <laughs> new bird. <It's, laughs> I'm sorry to tease, but, but I think I, it, actually, it's tough. It, it it is tough to have that kind of IP around for so long and then introduce a new character. I think it's not it's not easy to do. I I I didn't want to go down this road because I know 
folks at Rovio probably listen to this podcast, but like at the end of the day, I think Rovio is probably the most undervalued and underutilized IPs in the world. <laughs> I think there's like, so particularly with IDFA, there's so much more opportunity for Rovio to uh, excel in this market uh, with the brands that they have. Uh, so I think it's, uh, it's, 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 yeah. Well, and I'm hoping that we will see them do that over the next few years. Um, anyway, but uh, good for them. <laughs> They're releasing a game, another character after four years. It's the start. It's after our, after four years of resistance. This is the start of their descent into a MOBA shooter. It's their first new hero. They're gonna. It's gonna. It's gonna blow up before. I mean, I actually, I'm pretty sure they've released an Angry Birds MOBA shooter. Like they've done every genre of game with the birds. Some of them multiple times. So yeah. it's amazing that number two just keeps chugging along. Yeah, no, I mean, that is probably the thing that keeps them going. It's their big, yeah. If I, if I remember the numbers correctly from Sensor Tower, I think it was uh, 40% of revenue comes from Angry Birds 2. I can double check it and report back next episode, but it is, it's a large percentage. This podcast is brought to you by Google for Games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for Games or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for Games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for Games. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. Yeah. Um, my quick update, uh, Callisto Protocol uh, launched. Uh, again, part of my job is to forecast and figure out what these titles are going to do before they launch. And uh, clearly this game has underperformed. The stock has gotten absolutely destroyed. Um, it was it had sp spiked back up because of speculation that this game was going to do well and, and, and expectations from the analysts. But uh 
you know, my my prediction was it was going to about do two or three million units, um, you know, during the next like six months, like for launch. Um, and it's basically going to do that or less at this point because <laughs> the game is just really bad. It, it, it's actually not bad. I, I shouldn't say it's bad. It's actually it. it it's just it's too short um, and it's niche. So I think some people will claim that that horror is not niche in the gaming market, as Mr. Ethan suggested earlier. But like, what I'm trying to say is that pre-recording. Horror, what? Yeah. Yeah. We we talked about this pre-recording a little bit. But. Yeah, a little bit, right? The horror genre, like the single-player horror genre, is niche by definition to me, anyway. And they don't sell a lot of units, but there are exceptions to that, right? But there there are a lot of reasons why this game wasn't going to do well, besides the fact that I think the horror genre is relatively niche. One, it was releasing December. You never release games in December particularly new IPs, because you get drowned out by all the activities that are going on during the holidays, right? And you can't really make a, an impression on something new, you know? Um, they were really an experienced publisher. They used Crafton as, an, as a publisher, which I don't think makes a lot of sense. Although I can't really blame the marketing. I think they did a reasonably good job. But I, I think overall, they would have much better off with something like, you know, EA or even, you know, Activision or whatever. Um there was like hardly any buzz going into launch, which may have been part of the publishing problem, besides like enthusiast press, which absolutely love these guys. Um, and uh, and I think they and I think the biggest fundamental problem they had was they pushed this game out too early, right? Is that they were really trying to get this thing in their fiscal year to to make up for the poor performance of PUBG uh, New State, uh, and and that was that was not acceptable, right? Uh, because I think. It, it launched with a lot of bugs and, and problems. Um, but what I got wrong on this is that the reviews actually were worse than I expected. I expected the reviews to be in the in the low 80s and they're in the low 70s. And that's primarily because the game is too iterative on Dead Space and um, and the quality of the bugs. Sorry, I expected bugs, but I didn't expect it to be that that bad, particularly on PC, right? PC, it's evidently a disaster. But, um, but the other thing is too short uh much too short it's like eight, eight hours you can't do that anymore in this world um and and i think the really biggest thing i missed was that they really lacked innovation like the game was so iterative and they just basically replicated almost exactly the same kind of things as dead states which is a little bit disappointing um, well, i i am um, i mean i'm in the target demo for yeah. this game like i love dead space one and two i even bought evil within one and two both of those like i am the target demo for this and i was excited for this game and because uh, there hasn't been another Dead Space in so long, and I don't have the remaster yet, like the limb severing gameplay from Dead Space 1 and 2 is so fun and satisfying and no one else is doing it. And when I read the reviews as an enthusiast, like the type of person who would pre-order this or buy it day one if it got 9 out of 10, um, it they chain they didn't do the limb severing they have you know ign kind of described it as like chonky melee combat and it's like well that's not what i wanted like they uh, they really? innovated the core gameplay kind of in the wrong direction interesting right yeah. i don't want first person melee combat i always find that disappointing i need third person and so all i need is like i check out the review score i see like the combat is weird and unresponsive and it's buggy. And in my brain, I just go, okay, well when it's five or $10 on steam, I'll buy yeah. it. Well, right. and, and that's exactly what this is going to happen, right? When you make a game, that's only eight hours and it gets low reviews. It basically goes in the bargain bin. And so 
um, you're going to be buying this for twenty dollars in the next like three months, right? And 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 it's probably going to do well at that price point. That, that you know these and horror genre in general like really do well. Like uh, uh, Dead by Daylight, I think Dead by Daylight. I know there's a couple ones that have done really well. Um, Dead by Daylight sold oh, a dying lot. Light, the rest dying in Evil. No, the, dying the rest in Evil one. remakes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I yeah I know we were trying to cut this back, but. Resident Evil is actually the exception to the rule about what's because that game has been around forever and it's it's really well known. It's a really well established IP and, and and movies and all that other stuff. That game is huge, right? But the, it's really hard to replicate that kind of success with the horror genre. Is kind of what my main point here is. Um, Question: So, as someone who cannot watch horror movies or play horror games because I get terrible nightmares, the only one that sticks in my mind is Alien Isolation. How does it compare to this one? I'm just curious because that game for me was a little bit of a viral hit. I can't forget. Didn't play, but everyone talked about it. Well, I, Alien Isolation was like didn't have wasn't combat forward, right? It was a lot about hiding from the monster. Uh, okay. And and so and it's had a single player version of what you now see in a lot of asymmetrical like the Friday the 13th co-op multiplayer and um I forget what that Turtle Rock game was um but I think Alien Isolation was much more of playing a horror movie um whereas this is like it has jump scares and it's got a lot of gore and a lot of like body horror type stuff um, but it is a very combat heavy game, right? In Alien Isolation, like you can't kill the alien. You have to hide a lot. Anyway, uh, well, the good news here is like this game is good enough, I think, to justify them making another game, right? I think the, the team has proven that they can execute against a AAA game. And so what I'm hoping is that they they reinvest in the team and they make something else, maybe outside the horror genre, potentially, but or build something that innovates and, and brings more people in to this genre. Right. And, and, and the team is amazing and they're, you know, well credited. I don't know if you, everyone knows the team, but they made uh, dead, uh, dead space, but they also made um, call of duty forever um, with uh, Activision. So anyway, so I'm hoping for the best for these two guys. They're, they're, they're pretty amazing game developers. Um, the next thing I don't really want to talk about this stuff anymore, but it is like really topical right now because I think, Things are not looking good for this deal between Microsoft and 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 Activision, but uh, the latest news is that Microsoft is giving a ten year uh, deal to Nintendo, right? So that <laughs> for ten years and Steam, by the way, which is a little bit more interesting, but ten year deal in which the the uh, Nintendo can ha- will have Call of Duty on their platform. Now, <laughs> the problem with this, the reason that this is all posturing and absolute bullshit is it's been almost 10 years since there was a Call of Duty on Nintendo platforms, right? It was a Wii U version of Call of Duty Ghosts, which did less than 100,000 units, right? And it was a terrible, 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 terrible game on the Wii U, right? Because the hardware could not handle it. And the Call of Duty can't even fucking run on Switch. So I don't even know what the fuck they're talking about of bringing any type of Call of Duty. Maybe the mobile version. I don't fucking know. But they're not bringing Call of Duty, like the game that that runs on PlayStation, (laughs) to the Switch because the shit doesn't work. You know, the, the hardware is too fucking weak, right? Again, this is all PR posturing, uh, nothing more. Um, I think more relevant is the extension of, uh, of the deal agreement with Valve, right, for 10 years, uh, which, again, PC represents maybe 12, 15% of overall revenue for uh, units for, for Call of Duty. Um, and again, most of that's, a lot of that will be on Battle.net. 
but they don't really compete with them directly in the console market, right? It's really Sony is the only one that's competing. So anyway, this is again, more posturing and more bullshit, changing the definition of the market, you know, providing data points to the legal entities about what they're doing in order to make sure that Call of Duty maintains on on all, all platforms. I don't know if it's going to work. I, I think the coverage is relatively positive on this, so we will see. Um, but it'll really come down to what happens in the EU and the UK, in my opinion. I think the US will ultimately rubber stamp this thing, as I said before. So we will keep keep an eye on this. Ethan? Oh, sorry. I, um, I wanted to talk about Diablo Immortal real quickly. I wrote a very quick uh, two-minute read. Uh, on my blog, put it up right before we recorded because Diablo Immortal hit its six-month anniversary. And thanks to our partnership at Data AI, I have mobile revenue estimates that I can talk about. So um, I just wrote that according to these Data AI estimates, Diablo Immortal is crushing it with an estimated $280 million in mobile worldwide revenue in the six months since launch. And uh, more impressively, is the growth of revenue per download, according to these estimates, right? In, in uh, the launch month, Data AI had it at $6.09, and now it's nearly $15 per download. So this is the sort of revenue per download, if these estimates are true, that, you know, coming from a UA-heavy company, you'd go, man, they can invest a lot in UA to scale this game, uh, but they don't need to because of the strength of the Diablo brand. Again, according to these estimates, 75% of these worldwide downloads are organic. So this is a game they can continue to operate. Um, they don't need to spend a lot in advertising in, and they're just going to um, rake in money um, with this game. It's got it's proven to have a lot more spend depth than we on the podcast uh, estimated in its launch week when we talked about it. And so I think it's doing really well. And this is ignoring the idea, like, because we don't have any way of estimating it until we get quarterlies, um, that they also have a PC version that is undoubtedly making a ton of revenue and a ton of gameplay as well. We can estimate that, you know, we can guess that the most devoted players and the type of players who are really high spenders are probably spending most of their time on PC. So um, I expect this game is doing really well on PC. The estimates are really good on uh, mobile. And I think they've, you know, it, it just kind of makes me go make it, it's even more mysterious that the, uh, world of Warcraft NetEase collaboration fell apart and that the operation of world of Warcraft in China with NetEase fell apart. Like this partnership has worked really well, um, on mobile and from, you know, not being in, in, on the deal-making side at all, having no experience there, just being a player, I go like, this is great game, great revenue. What what happened that made this relationship fall apart that they scrapped this World of Warcraft game? Because um, it would be as big or bigger than Diablo Immortal. Yeah, I, the only comment I'm going to make on this is that this is the typical shark fin type thing for RPGs where they're making like a quarter of the revenue in month four than they did in month one. So, or whatever, six months. So it's not... The trajectory is not good from a revenue perspective, um, but the overall revenue is actually quite, quite much better than we expected or I expected uh, because of what you suggested. Is spend depth is there, but retention just seems not as good um, compared to something like Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes or 
Marvel Strike Force or Contest of Champions or even like Candy Crush or like games that like continue their revenue uh, forever and ever, or it seems like forever and ever. Well, until Apple put in ATT, but um, um, anyway, so yeah, I think the game is doing really well and I agree with you. I don't, I mean, I think they should continue this relationship with Netties because there's, they certainly executed against this IP better than, than, than Blizzard would have on mobile. Right. And, and bringing wow to mobile would actually be really, really interesting. Um, you know, given the types of games that they've, they've made out there, uh, it makes total sense. So we'll see. I mean, obviously it's, maybe we'll get more detail as to what happened between them. Yeah, it'll be to to the point of the shark fin. It'll be actually really interesting if we get more insight into the revenue as quarterlies come out, because it's possible. I mean, one hypothesis is a shark fin because one of the biggest brand gaming brands in the world came out with promotion from the platform holders and, and a bunch of brand marketing. And so it blew up in the first month and now it's, you know, lower user base and more hardcore users. Uh, a second hypothesis is that the biggest spenders move to PC and move their revenue to PC. Yeah, but there's no evidence and, they're actively doing that. But I, I hear what you're saying, though. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm just like I'm making hypothesis about the future, and hopefully, we'll we'll get some more data in uh, in uh, as yeah, quarterlies I mean, I, and annuals come out. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll we'll see. Their forecast for next year has got to be significantly lower than. Um, yeah, for the next couple quarters should be significantly lower than the first couple quarters, if if I'm right, right? Um, and then the China revenue, you have to keep in mind the China revenue, they don't make any money on, right? Or make very little uh, relative to the Western revenue. So Right, uh, yeah. We don't we don't know the details of the revenue split between the two companies. So well, this I, is just... I, I know the... De- well, I know <laughs> that they make very little money on the China okay. revenue. Like right. I know that for relative certainty. Because um, I think the company, the company has actually said that before. So. All right. Uh, Laura. I actually pulled this for Ethan. I don't know if you want to comment on this. I could do a little, a, a little summary and then yeah. I'm going to refrain from comments. Um, so Apple blocked, so I pulled this from Benedict's newsletter, but Apple blocked Coinbase for including NFT transfers in its app unless it gets the standard 30% commission. Um, which in the case of things like erythrium gas fees is not remotely feasible. So this is kind of touching back on the argument of um, platform fees and a lot of the discussion that's been happening. I'm curious on on Ethan's take on this. Yeah, I actually, I, so the uh, I have to correct you that it's Ethereum. Oh, sorry, Ethereum. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. I, I'm not in the crypto world that much. So. Yeah, um, I'm actually going to read... Um, Tim Sweeney's tweet on this that I retweeted because I thought it was really good. You know, I'm not 100% aligned with Tim Sweeney and his war against Apple. Um, And a lot of times I find myself disagreeing. But now that it's in the crypto realm, you know, he said, if they can lawfully add a 30% Apple tax to all NFT transactions, then they can lawfully add a 30% Apple tax to all online banking and stock trading transactions. The App Store monopoly is seizing control of the American economy. Apple must be stopped. All right. So, that's a very strong two closing statements from Tim. But um, the thing that I think what where I'm in alignment is um, this, the gas fee on uh, blockchain-based transactions, when a user pays it, this is the equivalent of, um, this would be like if the user had to pay for their AWS uh, fees while playing any 
live service game, right? This is not revenue that is being generated. This is the processing cost. And what's interesting about blockchain, um, depending on the chain, is that the processing cost for these transactions falls to the user and not to, um, you know, traditionally, like as a game developer, we eat all those server side costs and pass them on um, in the form of higher, the, the price, the things that we charge. So um, I think it's an apt uh, comparison of saying this is like um, Apple taking 30% of uh, online banking transaction fees or 30% of um, stock trade fees, things that they don't do. Um, as a Web3 developer, um, the current state of Apple platform decisions around how NFTs can be used in apps um, just makes it, um, they're not on my roadmap anytime soon, basically, for, for development. And I hope that these things improve um, because I feel like the policies are out of line with other kind of standard in in-app purchases right now. And uh, it's like, if I can't use NFT ownership to unlock in-game features and content, then what's the purpose of having NFT-based <laughs> um, gameplay on mobile? And, you know, we all know that mobile is the biggest computing platform in the world. It's how most people in the world access game entertainment. And so I want very much to be able to build blockchain games Um on on these two platforms within the regulations and right now it's just like wait and see and see how the policies play out and, and hope they change more in in the crypto developers favor i mean the only comment i have is this is very consistent with apple's policies forever like they haven't really changed you know wall garden keep it close make sure there's no transactions unless it's china or netflix <laughs> Or Spotify, <laughs> something that benefits the platform, right? So I, I don't imagine these these things changing anytime soon, unless legal action is taken against Apple. Um, so we'll, we will see. All right. So I'm going to talk a little bit about taxonomies in this hybrid casual. So last week in the first version of 211 Twig, I endeavored rather eloquently to open a discussion on taxonomy and genres initiated by a sponsored post on Pocket Gamer. So not, not Mishka, uh, I think it was Om, Mishka and Om's original uh, article they wrote a couple of years ago. So I wanted to make my points a bit clearer. Uh, so why is taxonomy and classification important? And can, why was this a point for me? I think a fitting metaphor would be job titles. There's a little bit of a debate, and I had this debate with a, a former colleague of mine about whether titles were important. And in my experience, titles are quite important. And most people who say they aren't usually have the right title or one that they're happy with. Um, so I think why it's important is that it aligns expectations. If you're going to meet a junior designer or a senior producer, you have a semi-complete base of understanding of what this person can and cannot do. It saves preamble. You don't have to explain each time you meet them what your experience is and what it isn't. And I think that is a, a fitting uh, comparison to taxonomy because it serves a similar purpose. It sets expectations and a basis of evaluation up front. You know you're playing a mid-core game um, and that it's a mid-core game and to expect certain features and mechanics that align with what you may or may not want to play. And of course, there's, you know, in all both of these examples, whether it's a title or 
a classification and there's exceptions and there's aspects that are misclassified or don't belong in the classification, but that's the exception, not the rule. And I think in, in games, there are types of players that like certain types of gameplay. Having a correct taxonomy helps us put words and goals or product and you know, game market fit for what type of player we want to design an experience for. It also helps us benchmark and measure success. So I think we've We've seen this work really well, and we've seen examples um, of when there isn't a large enough audience to support a game, even if that game is amazing. So this helps this helps kind of rule, rule those out, or at least in larger businesses, try to predict them more upfront. So how it currently works, and I we use um, I use Sensor Tower quite a lot, and how they and and I also use uh, Game Refinery, and they use the following to de- kind of describe mobile games. So they have categories, genres, and subgenres. And we work with generally four categories, and this is not used by all of kind of the big reporting houses, but they, they typically are casual, mid-core, sports racing, and casino. Uh, Data AI, which was formerly App Annie, uses casual core casino, and they, they group sports and racing under, under casual. Um, the reason for the separation in Data AI is that casino, driving, and sports games have unique target audiences and core features in comparison to other games. So um, they, again, it's back to audience. So they see slightly different behaviors. So they've, they've, re- they've classified it in a slightly different way. In both cases, hyper-casual falls under casual. And then genre, I mean, that includes what we know and love, puzzle, hyper-casual, simulation lifestyle. And then subgenres break it down, break down larger genres. So that's where you get the trivia, the word, the match three, puzzle, et cetera. Um, so I'll be, I'll be the first to admit that I use genres and subgenres pretty interchangeably. So I haven't been quite sticking with what, I guess, what I would consider with uh, Sensor Tower or with Data AI, how they would classify it. So this goes back to the original article and and how does the proposal of hybrid casual fit or not before, fit and why? Laura, Go ahead. Laura, before you continue, I just want to, I want to make one point here is that yeah. what I've been doing my entire career is using market data to size opportunities, you know, the to- total addressable market. And by using these definitions of, of genre, that helps you kind of uh, create a framework around what the opportunity is. So if you have a development team that says, hey, we want to make a racing game, you know, a kart racing game for mobile, I can tell you with absolute certainty that that is a shitty idea, right? Because <laughs> there's not, there's no revenue being generated by games in the racing genre with the exception of like one or two games, right? Which is, you know, the the, the Zynga game, which I'm blanking on for some reason and whatever, or CSR. MOBAs. CSR or MOBAs. Don't fucking make a MOBA in the West, right? Why do I know that? Because every game that's come out with the best <laughs> IP possible has fucking failed, right? And so anyway, what, what I like about using these genre definitions is it creates a framework around the market so that we can have a, a, a comprehensive understanding across the entire organization of where the big genres are, where the small genres are, and that that is one of the associations of risk of, of building games in those genres, right? And so I think that's really important for people to understand. And I and and frankly, Data AI and Center Tower have done a great job, I think, of of categorizing, with some exceptions. I think some of this stuff is not right, but like, um, but overall, like, I think it's really, 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 really smart. So the last thing I will say, and I had this debate with, uh, uh, I think, someone at Game Makers when we were doing a panel, is like shooters, right? So if you look at the shooter genre, 
it feels huge, right? There's Fortnite, Call of Duty, there's, you know, PUBG and all that stuff, but it represents like five or 6% of the Western market. It's tiny, right? Relative to casino, uh, strategy, puzzle, and RPG. And, and of that 5%, it's representative of like, represented by like two games, right? And so it's really important to know that the genre is small. So going after the shooter genre is, is challenging and you're up against like really entrenched competitors, right? And so it's really important to understand that framework um, and understand where the market is uh, from a revenue perspective, not from a download perspective either. So anyway, um, so that's, that's how I use the taxonomies for all, for all these services. So continue. Okay, back to hybrid casual. Yes, and I completely agree with Eric. My key point that as a, as a category, hybrid casual does not differentiate itself from casual. Um, and I hope there's general alignment on that. I think the if I, if I break it down by monetization, it's pretty much the same as casual. It's a mix of ads and purchases. The audience has a huge overlap with casual and the mechanics and design, they're taken directly from genres within casual. So it's usually a mix of two genres within casual. But does it does it deserve to have its own genre? And I I think this is this is where my key point is, and I am aware that people may not agree, and that's totally fine. I think it's too vague, and it's a synonym for mashup. Genres tend to describe a high level mechanic, whether it's a puzzle or I mean hyper casual kind of doesn't fit in this, but it's arcade, it's a simulation. Hybrid casual, as I understand it, wants to combine hyper casual with other casual games, and that's totally fine. But hybrid casual implies any sort of mashup that uses game elements found in casual games. I think this is just too broad um, and should really, it, it just, it's too broad. So if, if I look at hybrid, I would just say that, okay, a hybrid casual game can either be hyper casual or you could just take stuff from mid-core too because hybrid just means a mix of two things. So uh, to me, I would, I would scrap it as a genre and use, and use something that um, use something that would classify it. If you're going to try to classify a game that is a mashup or taking two elements, you classify it based on its core, whether it leaned into casual or mid-core. Um, and I would, I would argue that hybrid, uh, hybrid casual is more of a product strategy than a classification. Um, I mentioned mid-core light, um, but actually a better refinement would be some sort of sl sliding scale that shows how much a game leans into its subgenre based on the core it uses. So, so I'm not even sure I would take mid-core light because, again, that also falls into the category of too vague. Um, but I would say I think it'd be interesting if, I mean, it, I'd love to see sensors, what Sensor Tower would think of how we would kind of classify the new wave of all these, these new mashups that are coming out. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about this in a future episode, but like one, one thing that comes to mind is a lot of the merge games, you have this merge mechanic and you're combining it with a whole bunch of things from all over the taxonomy. How, where, how do you start classifying that? Is it merge or are you taking the other parts of the game? Anyway, so that's how I wanted to uh, classify, or rather better clarify my points from last week. <laughs> There's two real ironies here, right? First of all, fucking Mishka wrote an article about coining, well, I don't know if he coined the term, but he definitely used the term hybrid casual. So we're like ripping it to part like last week. <laughs> it was fucking Mishka who put it out there from Deconstructor of Fun. That was super well, irony, right? Better, uh, the second thing, better placing it. Better placing it. Okay, better placing it. Fine. Um, but then the second thing is that, like, the reality of it is, is that these these genres are so they're like mice nuts, right? And so, like, it's not important to the to the genre taxonomy until they actually they're, are meaningful. They're like mice nuts because Eric Crest loves bringing them up. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> By the way, I created my first sweatshirt with uh, with with the, some online thing, and it says uh, "Deconstructor of Fun" on the front, and on the back it says "Mice Nuts." So uh, I'll be wearing uh, that for the next conference. You <laughs> You're going to become a for theme. My... I'm, I'm oh, doing shit, they're a, expensive, uh, dude. They're really expensive. I, 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 I can't even justify making more. Maybe some t-shirts. First, <laughs> first tease, there's going to be a, uh, a live uh, uh, Deconstructor Fun recording as part of GDC this year in the Free-to-Play Summit. So I got to get one of those Mice Nuts sweatshirts. I'd actually what? prefer a Shut the Fuck yeah, Up, I didn't hear Ethan. this either. No, it's because I, I submitted a, a Fireside Chat, not a, not a twig. Oh, not, um, okay. Not like a, a Spotlight. Okay interview yeah. but i well, need to shut the fuck up ethan sweatshirt for it yeah, I'll, I'll do i'll make one. i'll make one of those for you all right i'll send it to you <laughs> it'll uh, be pro- it'll yeah. be my hanukkah my present gift. um <laughs> the uh turkey one the we should we should we should bring some t-shirts to turkey though for that for the next uh, uh google thing want to know how your results stack up against other gaming apps well now you can apps flyer the industry leader in measurement and mobile analytics, just released a new tool providing benchmarks on 21 key growth metrics for over 20 categories in 25 markets for both iOS and Android. And it's available now for free at appsflyer.com benchmarks. Yes, you heard that correctly, completely free. In just one click, you can easily compare installs, retention, revenue, media cost, and much, much more. With these benchmarks, you'll be able to get intel on your competitors, set goals based on insights from the top 10% of mobile games, explore new markets and growth opportunities, inform soft launches, and understand market dynamics and trends so that you can adapt your UA strategy accordingly. Over the past seven years, AppsFlyer's industry data reports, trends, and insights have helped thousands of mobile app marketers to excel at their jobs and grow their apps. Trust them, they know their data. Head to appsflyer.com slash benchmarks now for more info. Let's pause this podcast for a moment because I need to talk to you. That's right, you. Are you ready? Good. So, you're an indie game developer and you need funding to help you launch and market your game. No problem, right? There should be one place where you can get funding and resources, but there really hasn't been one until now. Our friends at Exola have launched Exola Funding Club, which you should check out ASAP. Exola Funding Club is matchmaking service for developers, investment firms, and groups, as well as video game publishers. They have a simple process. Developers apply to join the funding club. Once they're accepted, their applications are sent directly to interested investors looking to invest into video games. Games just like yours. It's a win-win situation. Qualified developers get their game pitches placed in front of funding sources, while investors discover curated games that meet their criteria for the investment portfolio. Ready to get started? Just head over to exola.pro funding, or find the link in the episode description and apply today. Exola Funding Club putting the fun back in funding moving on so nintendo uh okay uh okay nintendo announced some kind of like partnership with dna we, we talked about that before dina whatever the fuck you want to call them right um but now there's more of the pr machine is starting to work over at nintendo and they're starting to get out there the game industry up is and talk about their new strategy for mobile right um and so basically they say they confirmed as 
most of us already assumed is that they're going to make mobile games for more like marketing tools uh, rather than revenue generators. And, um, you know, the article goes on to say, well, you know, they had an erratic track records of mobile games. They first launched Mario Run in 2016. And now they've kind of shut off, shut down half the titles that they've made. They've made, um, oh man, they didn't list it. Oh shoot. Dragalia Lost. Yeah, Dragalia Lost, Mitomo, uh, Super Mario Run, Market Kart Tour, Animal Crossing, Fire Emblem Heroes, and Pikmin Bloom, right? And I think they shut down Dragalia Lost and uh, Mitomo, right? And um, and so anyway, so now they're moving forward with a new strategy to basically primarily the goal is to market uh, Nintendo IPs, all right? So my, my kind of take on this whole PR spin that's going on right now is that Basically, their first entry into mobile was a fucking unmitigated disaster, with the exception of Fire Emblem. Fire Emblem just crushed it, right? It was a fucking amazing, we well-made game for mobile, particularly in Japan. But it did well in the U.S. Tregalia Lost made over $100 million. Yeah, but still, still, it, it didn't scale. And it, 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 it was too niche. I, it, it wasn't I'm sure right that's IP. more revenue than Pikmin 3 that Lauren and I love. Well, Pikmin 3 was a disaster, too. What are you talking um, about? Oh, Pikmin 3 on, 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 no, on Pikmin, console. That was on console. Oh, yeah. like, how can you call $100 million oh, in revenue you're thinking failure? Of Pikmin Bloom. Pikmin Bloom, I'd say, is um, that, that I don't know if that it's not quite a game as much as it is. It's more of um, like encouraging you to go outside and tracking your walking progress. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Now I got to look up to Crayola Loss. I forgot that one. Yeah, I, I just wanted to, I mean, oh, it's like, off the store. It's, it's easy because <laughs> like, it, why can't I find it, it? It's off the it's store. It's easy because it's shut down to no, 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 think no, sorry, mentally sorry. it's a failure, but no, okay, that game okay. is a huge success. Right. I, no, it's not a huge success because the, 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 it, what's, it, it depends on how you define success. That's the fundamental problem because this, this is my whole point, right? That that was not the original strategy by Nintendo. This is like revisionist history, right? Before... In 2015, when they started announcing their mobile strategy, there were analysts out there expecting billions and uh, uh, billions with a B. And within like two or three years, this wasn't not like a five or ten year plan. Like I, I remember, uh, what's his name, uh, Sirkin Toto, who's a brilliant guy who does Japan. He was like fucking knee. Sorry, I was going to use a bad word, but knee deep in this thing. He was a fucking absolutely loved the strategy of of bringing Nintendo games to mobile. He had said at one point that that everyone wants Mario Kart on mobile, this thing will make billions, billions, you know, but when it comes out, right? And basically the game made 200 million on 200 million downloads in the past three years, right? So that is a success, I agree with you in terms of revenue, right? But in terms of what expectations were, it was an absolute disaster, absolute disaster of epic proportions across the entire portfolio, again, with the exception of something like Fire Emblem, and maybe Dragalia lost to some degree, but whatever. They shut it down for obvious reasons, right? Probably the cost of maintaining it was too much, right? So anyway, what I, I really do think that Sirkin and others made a very made a mistake in terms of how Nintendo approaches game design and, and how it was never going to be successful on mobile, right? And so they are about in creative integrity, right? The exact opposite of traditional, like aggressive, shall I say, predatory monetization design of free-to-play games, right? And on top of that, Nintendo's franchises themselves don't necessarily translate to mobile because they a lot of their franchises require like precise control, like Mario Kart, Donkey Kong, Mario, etc. Like, and that's really hard to replicate on 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 a mobile device, right? And so, so anyway, the, a lot of their IPs just don't fit, right? Um, 
And then after they announce the Switch, and then they see all the success on the Switch, right? This is really their entry in into the into the mobile market, right? This is like their first mobile game design system since the 3DS, right, way back when, right? And so their goal now is clearly to support the Switch as a handheld device as well as a console to connect to your TV. And so again, this this new approach makes sense, right? They want to support um, mobile as a way of marketing their IP to. Uh, to the mobile gaming audience, which is absolutely massive, right? Um, and so they can bring, they can build great experiences around their ISPs and not worry about integrating these monetization designs um, on their beloved franchises, right? So it's perfect, like fit. This is what it should have always been, is my kind of opinion and what I had said way back when, right? Um, so what, what should happen is that they can bring mobile games to the to players around the world, which basically are a marketing vehicle for, for the Switch and creates like this aspirational purchase of the switch, you know, for this big worldwide audience. And I think it's a win, 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 right. Overall. Um, uh, and I, I honestly, I do think this is like a, again, this strategy makes sense and it gives Nintendo, um, you know, their franchise is just a broader, broader market, um, worldwide market. And hopefully we'll bring more switches to the main, you know, to, to a ma the massive worldwide audience, right. Ultimately. Right. So anyway, that's kind of my take is that, Again, I think this this strategy makes sense, and 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 <laughs> and we should see some amazing experiences from Nintendo on mobile over the next couple of years. That don't have one. I, I keep using the use predatory just because I'm trying to. I'm, I'm uh, to make uh, me. I am not a predatory game designer, as I'll say in these next <laughs> in this next segment. The users want to spend money. I know spending money makes them happy. I'm just trolling. I'm just trolling. <laughs> These guys are giving you know, me a hard I, time. I, I actually have a, a, a question um, for you, Eric, and, and you may yep. or may not know. These expectations, were they set by Nintendo forward-looking statements or DNA forward-looking statements? Or did analysts, like, if an analyst, from my mind on the operator side, if an analyst says something that's wildly divorced from reality and my game makes a bunch of money, like that's a success. But if analysts or Wall Street, you know, make a bunch of silly assumptions and then stock price goes up, like it's a very weird world to me, I guess. And yeah. so like if if these predictions were not based on forward looking statements from Nintendo or DNA, then like. I don't care what someone on the outside says. They don't no, no. know anything. That, dude, that is a fair question, 100%. And, I, and there, there's certain circumstances in which it is the analysts that are way, expectations are overblown. Like all the forecasts around Unity, App Love, and Iron Source. Well, there is a combination of both. Never mind. That's not a fair, good example. In this particular case, Nintendo was probably less, uh, uh, less aggressive in terms of expectations, but their expectations were a lot higher than what they ended up performing. DNA, on the other hand, their expectations implied some insane amounts of growth relative to the, to, because they were already partnering with Nintendo and that was part of their forecast, right? Which right. is what leads analysts to higher forecasts going forward. They extrapolate based on what DNA is saying on, on what Nintendo should do. And so it's like this you know, it's a circle jerk, right? In terms of <laughs> expectations. And it, it creates all kinds of problems from expectations, but it is up to Nintendo to manage those expectations, right? right? Ultimately right. to the investors, which they generally do a very poor job of. Um, well, 
sorry, I, I shouldn't make that flippant remark, but what, what I'm saying is it was a combination in this case. Other cases, not so much. It was more, you know, a lot of it lies on the companies. A lot of it lies on the analysts. It depends on the circumstance. So, Right. But, Thank you for clarifying me. No uh, the world of markets and analysts is uh, is uh, important and mysterious, I guess. <laughs> That's how I feel about crypto. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. Um, I'll close it out with uh, a news story from gamesindustry.biz. Uh, Apple unveils new app pricing options. Let me just read from the article. Uh, the update will add an additional 600 set price points and 100 higher price points available upon request, giving users a total of 900 different pricing options to choose from. The prices will range from $0.29 cents to a high of $10,000 should the price be requested. Um, from today, app makers will also be able to manage currencies, taxes, and conversions easier with the automatic price generating across multiple territories based on the price of one store. Um, so I think this is really great news, these higher price points, right? We've had $100 as the highest price point um, on device itself um, since free-to-play uh, uh, existed. Um, and and uh, part of me wonders if they've seen, since they collect the 30% tax on web store purchases, right? Or I, I believe that, right, there's some API to like, tap into the web store purchases like a, a big part of why web store purchases is desirable for games with uh, a strong monetization is that they want to offer um, their biggest spenders higher discounts on bigger packages right like if if somebody you know we we know there are many games out there that have people that spend tens to hundreds of thousands to even millions of dollars a year inside of single games and imagine, like, if you are that user, that user that made headlines in Mobile Strike for spending $2 million, like, how annoying it is to spend $2 million $100 at a time, right? <laughs> Among these players, there is a desire for the players for more convenience and for the developers to give them a bigger discount, give them more uh, currency and more perks for spending that money. And... Um, if you listen to Gabe Layden, uh, one of his interviews on, on why he started Limit Break and why he's so excited about crypto, one of the things he was excited about coming from running some of the highest monetizing games in the world was the ability to have no purchase limit, to make it easy for an individual to spend $100,000 or more because of crypto payments. Um, now that's like the extreme high end, but like from being on the live op side of a very successful mid core game and, and from playing some of these games, like I'm very, I think this is a great, um, uh, a thing, you know, you can, you, I'm sure I, I'm guessing they've seen from the data that players want the, players who are spenders want the ability to spend more money at once. Um, and now uh, uh, developers will be able to request it and implement it on device and, and not have to figure out how to get people to a web store um, to spend to, to make those purchases instead. But shill shill, if they do want to implement the web store, they can use our very uh, beloved sponsor, Exola, to implement a web store where you can make more, you know, these high ticket purchases. OK, um, with that forget the shilling for a moment but why why is it why is it that this took them so long to institute i mean we've been 
talking about yeah. big time spenders. And I, this was an issue back in Kabam days where you had to, yeah, you had to like segment your purchases to down to like a very uh, small amount relative to what these were willing to spend. And so they, sorry, I, 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 yeah. I should have stepped back. I, a minute. I, so the design was made so that you could effectively spend insane amounts of money really quickly, right? Like, like, so you had to design it that way. And it, and that was a, sorry, that was a limitation of the platform itself. And, and you had to design it that way. So it's like, this is something that we were requesting ages ago, like 10 years ago. Right. So why do you think it took yeah. so long for them to do it? And why now? Or do you know? I, I mean, I have, I, I don't know. Um, I'm just guessing here because Apple, you know, in, in, whatever's going on inside the big um, platform holders is is even more mysterious than the world of crypto. Um, I, you know, my guess is that it's the seeing the success of of web store purchases and seeing that there's a demand for it. Um, I imagine it took so long because of the potential for negative PR. Right. Like, right, right, right. Because because you have to list what IAP are like the minute whoever is the first person who implements a ten thousand dollar purchase in their game, there's no way there's not a number one Verge and TechCrunch and Reddit (laughs) story about it. Like, can you believe these fucking app developers are charging $10,000 for their bullshit game? Like that's going number one on Reddit and it's trending on Twitter the day it happens. Whoever does it first, there's no doubt there's going to be a PR shitstorm, but that will be loud and inconsequential compared to the actual revenue, right? (laughs) It's like if I were a public company, I might not be rushing to a $10,000 purchase. I'd let someone else take the arrows. But if you're a VC or private company and like you can't get hurt from that sort of um, moment in the limelight, like... I'd absolutely put a $10,000 purchase in my mid-core game as soon as I possibly could. <laughs> Got it. Um, the other, I want to say one more thing about this, um, about the currency management tools. Like, it, it sounds cool. It sounds like a way for successful games to optimize their revenue, um, especially with currency fluctuations. And, you know, you'll see inside of companies that um, with uh, rewarded video ads, uh revenue it's it's common if if you're at a uh someone who does this successfully to have a person staffed full-time against a game or maybe a portfolio of games just to manage the ad waterfall and the relationships and the advertising revenue um and i could see a world where like i could imagine scopely having several people whose full-time job is just to kind of optimize um, price points and revenue based on currency fluctuations with these new tools. Now I'm, I'm like a little bit out on a ledge outside of my areas of expertise, but from what I read and what I'm interpreting, it, it sounds cool. And I think it'll be a net benefit to game operators. Cool. Well, that'll do it. I think for this week, thank you, Ethan, for, uh, uh, stopping a good luck. Oh, thanks for coming. And then thanks. Uh, yeah. Good luck with the new baby. Dude. Thank Number you. Four. Uh, happy, oh, happy holidays to everybody. Happy new year. I'll, I'll see you in January. And uh, if you all, the, I've got a bunch of really interesting, exciting and informative um, interviews that'll come out over the next couple of weeks. Um, but I'll, I'll be back in twig in uh, in January. I'm hoping all right. For. Talk to you guys soon. See you later. Bye. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, 
Are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructorofun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.